with all these interviews, I've realized that artists think a lot about society and a lot about all the socioeconomical issues that are happening all around the world. I was wondering, why do you think that is? Why do you think that that comes as a very important topic in art? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I've heard someone compare artists to like um, the other layer of skin on the body of society. In a sense, it's like the first thing that itches, you know, or like the, the first thing that would feel stuff happening, a change in temperature. The reason for this, I, it's hard to tell. I think possibly because we spend a lot of time in our head. I don't have, speaking for myself, like a nine to five job, for example. So I, I spend more time just thinking and looking around for things. And also like you kind of need to be privileged to some extent to be able to pursue the arts. I mean, it's very difficult if you come from like, you know, a really harsh socioeconomic background to just like make your way through it. So I don't know, I guess it gathers probably a lot of people that are more sensitive than the average, perhaps, and to begin with. And then on top of that, they end up spending a lot of time dealing with their own problems, yeah. <laughs> which becomes artworks or something. But the, the core of what we do, I guess, somehow has to do with how we respond to our environment, right? So I don't know, I guess that's sort of the basis from it. That's, that's what I guess, at least. I'm uh, Nicolas Grenier. I'm a visual artist, mostly painter, but I also do architectural installations and other things, I guess. It keeps growing. And I'm based in Montreal, but I also live in Los Angeles part of the year. Hi, I'm Mark Stris Wilson, and you're listening to Into This, the podcast where I explore contemporary art through conversations with artists curators, writers, collectors, students, and more. Welcome to episode number five. Before we begin, I wanted to say thank you so much for being patient with us. We know it's been a while since we posted the last episode, but during the break, we had the chance to interview very interesting people, and we are working hard to bring those conversations to your podcast feed very soon. Please let us know your comments and what would you like to hear in the show. As you heard, my guest today is Nicolas Grenier. In 2004, he graduated with a bachelor's in fine arts from Concordia University. Then he moved to California to pursue a master's in fine arts from the California Institute of the Arts, or CalArts, which he finished in 2010. He is represented by Antoine Tasker and Gallery in Montreal and by Luis de Jesus Los Angeles in LA. Nicola has participated in solo and group exhibitions in North America as well as in Europe. His work figures in collections such as Loro Quebec, the National Fine Arts Museum in Quebec, as well as several corporate and private collections. So, that is the formal and professional introduction he deserves. Now, if you know Nicola, chances are you already know that it takes only a few moments to recognize his sharp and acute thinking. He has the ability to turn any conversation into a safe exchange of ideas and interesting thoughts. In this conversation, we talk about what does it mean to be an artist in the present times, how important it is to have a political opinion, and how to deal with the fact that, at the end of the day, everyone needs to make ends meet. Here's episode number five of Into This. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Here we go. In your creative process, you involve many things. Research is one, and then there's writing, mm -hmm. yeah? And then there's 
the actual making the work. If you were to decide which one do you enjoy the most, what is that? Huh. I think it's a kind of a case-by-case case situation. Yeah. It really depends. Um, sometimes it's the research because I get to meet with lots of people and this is where things get bounced around and it's it's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes um, it's the part where I'm designing, whether it's that happens through text or through images. I'm just like, the idea is sort of coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very satisfying when you find like some kind of formal resolution of a completely abstract idea and you're just like, oh yeah, that's that, that's going to work. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's great. Um, sometimes it's also just when you're finishing up something and you're just like, God, I think I nailed it. I'm not sure, but I think it works. And then sometimes it's just so much labor, you know, and like you, you, after you, the, the creative part is done, you're just like, well, now I have got to, I can do it and, <laughs> and that takes like infinite amount of hours but yeah. one, one thing that I've learned though is that usually the good bits are always little surprises here and there you never know where or when they're going to come sometimes sure. it's in the middle of like a 40 hour task that's just taking forever and it's just totally not interesting and then somehow something happens and you're just like whoa like I just realized that this is really really great there's something that yeah. I'm you know, some kind of satisfaction that I'm getting from this that I usually don't somehow. Right. Or you, you find some kind of new technique while doing it. or So I would say it's totally unpredictable. And yeah. if whenever it gets predictable, whenever I realize that, like, I'm having much more fun deciding the idea on Photoshop than actually painting it because in the end the painting is too much about labor, yeah. then I, I, I change it. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like it to be predictable. Right. I think like one of the worst thing that can happen to art is to um, if if it stops surprising me, huh. you know, like uh, for anything actually. If like if a friend doesn't surprise me every once in a while, it's kind of a boring person, <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know, or like or, or a city like Montreal yeah. sometimes doesn't surprise me as much as it used to, and I right. and I kind of crave being in exactly. fucked up LA for a little while. I don't know, so so I think it's the same thing with art. Like I I'm, I'm looking for things to surprise me. Yeah. Um, Always looking for something new to explore. Yeah. yeah. Um, in that kind of sense, you listen to albums of musicians and you listen to, for example, uh, Kind of Blue, and you know that that album is made with no plans, nothing. They just played. And there's no one note that is wrong because there was no plan. Yeah. And I feel that there's a lot of that in art and I wonder if you feel like that too that hmm. something that you just do just because it's made from your you know artistic inspiration can be that or it, if it's something more that is tight and, and very exact and strict well that's an interesting parallel because I was a musician for a while as well okay. and I did lots of improvisation and I really enjoy this what I preferred to do um, but at some point I started to have bands that were tighter we did other stuff and I realized that for myself personally, I I think I can get better when I plan things. I think I'm good at obsessively planning things. Mm-hmm. And I can like I've I've tried to do, especially earlier during my BFA stuff, art that was just kind of improvised, you know, painting, for example, abstract stuff, whatever, whatever. And I mean, that's kind of a, it doesn't have to be such a literal correlation, but I've tried to apply what I did in instrumental improvisation to art making, uh, visual art making. And 
you know, I, sometimes I was very happy, but I just realized that over time I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just a planner, I guess. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and it's, and it's kind of in me. And also I realized that over time, if I like miles is something different, yeah. like I, I'm, he's really great. But overall, if I have to look at most bands that I look at, I think they're usually lousier okay, <laughs> when they're sure. trying to improvise and yeah. when they're tight. And like, if I think of say, I don't know, I'll just take like an old example, like Led Zeppelin, for example, mm -hmm. I think their studio mm -hmm. albums are always better than live versions. Sure. And if I think of almost any band that I know of, including Miles, actually, yeah. I think that his studio albums are better than the, the live albums. Right. Uh, and even the live albums are edited afterwards. Yeah. And so the, that's where the planning comes into play. Sure. And I'm not sure what they did with Kind of Blue, but yeah. Miles was a perfectionist in his own way as well. Absolutely. So in general, I'm a bit skeptical of the idea of the thing just happening loosely. Like it does happen sometimes and everything, yeah. but but why can't say Picasso, for example, make this amazing painting in 20 minutes because he's been doing it for like 40 years or something. Right. So I think like the planification, I would argue, just takes place in a different manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I agree with that. You know, there's that phrase of uh, I was training six years to become this in six minutes. Yeah, you know exactly. I mean? yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, I think one of the things too is like your instinct, for example, like mm -hmm. if you some artists are much more into it. Like I'm just really straight up guy about structure. So I, I love structures. I love to plan things and make systems and everything. Yeah. Some of my friends are just have like this kind of amazing intuitive take on things and they're going to like prepare an installation. They'll be like, Oh, and we're going to put this thing in there. I was like, why? It's mm -hmm. like, I don't know. It's going to be awesome. It's just like, really? Like, but then it is awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, and if you try to plan it, it, it sucks as an idea. Uh -huh. But then when it happens, you know, the person just somehow felt it and did it. And it just worked amazingly well. And that's something that I could have never planned, you know, right. because you can only plan for things you can imagine, but there's unimaginable thing that yeah. you just kind of feel and you know is going to work somehow and it does. Yeah. Um, so I guess like ultimately the best would be a combination of both. But sure. then it's also, I think that those things are triggered by instinct, but instinct is basically um, things you've learned. Yeah, an accumulation you know? of experience. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would argue just a different kind of subconscious planning perhaps or something sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. no i agree i agree so i don't know but maybe everything i said is just says that i'm more of a planner <laughs> <laughs> all that to say no yeah no for sure you i think you can tell but it's also by perhaps your... because i'm a bit jealous of people that can actually uh -huh. improvise more freely in their in their artwork like yeah. i've kind of stopped do, uh, it's not true i do it all the time on photoshop for example yeah. i'm trying really outrageous things without committing to anything. Mm -hmm. um, so it still plays actually a great part in my work without yeah. me really noticing it. But in the end, I always end up like making a plan. For sure. Yeah. I talked to Nicola last December in Montreal. As all of you probably remember, the world was still in shock about the results of the U.S. elections back then. It was impossible for me not to ask him how he felt about the Trump victory. Keep in mind, back then Donald Trump had not taken power yet, so the travel ban and other executive orders were still to come. Nicholas spent the summer of 2016 in the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. Skowhegan is in the state of Maine. 
So I asked Nicola how was the environment during the summer of 2016 at the residency. Here's Nicola. This summer with this co-egan in the residency in the States, there was like a lot of uh, discussions about race and what it means today and how can you act upon it. And, you know, I was really confronted in my own position. For one thing, I imagined that that basically educating people is possible, that most people who would say vote for Trump are not fundamentally evil <laughs> and that they basically most likely not been exposed don't even realize that a lot of the positions implied are racist. Basically, that was sort of my position. Mm -hmm. But then the thing is, you know, like I remember going to uh, the Walmart there and I saw a giant black pickup truck with the Confederate flag on it, full-scale Confederate flag and a full-scale American flag. And I mean, that, that thing looked like a war machine, you know, like a Nazi war machine. Yeah. And, you know, you see like one black guy coming out of the Walmart and you imagine what this guy feels like, yeah. you know. And then, you know, like you go back to the residency and then that day you learn that another black guy has been shot in Columbus. And then, you know, your f fellow resident who's from Columbus, you know, he's black and what is he going through? And then you, you realize that just like a lot of the people that I met were basically like, no, we, we cannot have a discussion with those people. Look at what's ha like, how do you discuss with a guy that f puts a fucking Confederate flag on his pickup truck? Yeah. You don't, you know, you're going to get beaten or you're going to have to beat him. So, yes. so. Basically, my perception of the world was kind of a much mellower one than mm -hmm. than one that was confronted with this summer. And even though, you know, like I've, I've been in rough parts of L.A. for a while and I, I thought that my perception of it was quite realistic and I just didn't quite grasp the full thing. And so it made me reconsider like what one can do realistically. And I feel that like the burden of educating, you know, those that are still being aggressive or in the wrong should not be on the victim. You know, it should be on basically people like me mm -hmm. to some extent because mm -hmm. I'm neutral and I'm kind of in between exactly. the two. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like I'm not the best person either because I don't fully grasp it. I'll never feel in my bones what it is to be black when you see a Confederate flag in the fucking Walmart parking lot, you know. So so <laughs> I'm just like I, I can like relate to it. But I on one hand, I feel like that Basically, I feel like I should do my part somehow in this. And then it's like, well, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> then is that. I remember some of the conversations I had there with some people. And, like, some people were just basically like, no, the only thing you can do is just to fight. Like, they, they didn't see any kind of education or any kind of discussion as being even remotely possible. And other people were just like, no, that's wrong. You just, we have to educate them because it's, mm -hmm. you know, just mathematically, if you... If you just, like, <laughs> take on anyone that's not quite like you and decide to fight them, it just doesn't make any sense. No. Um, and then, like, one of the things we discussed, like, well, what about, like, if you imagine you take a bunch of, like, local, um, you know, a bunch of local guys uh -huh. that are just, like, you know, from the gun shop or they're, like, all Trump supporters, like, you know, small town hardcore guys. And you just take a group of very diverse people and you just invite them to go play bowling, or something that doesn't involve any right. politics at all, yeah. that's just basically about exposure, exposing oneself to the other, essentially, mm -hmm. like reciprocally. So I'm like, what would that do? You know, but then you're just like, well, if that doesn't turn out well, I'm not the one that's going to be victimized. You know, yeah. it might be like the guy that looks a little too gay for them yeah. or the guy whose skin is a bit too dark for Like, you just don't know. And so then you're just like, well, I don't know what to do. It's tough. It's, it's really difficult. You know what I've noticed also that happens is that 
in my personal case, mm -hmm. me as a visual minority, they are talking about, say, Mexicans mm -hmm. and and whatever, their accents or whatever. And then they look at you and they say like, oh, but but not you. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not you. Yeah. Like, with you, it's different. Just because they know me. Yeah. You know? And that's exactly what you're saying. It's just the opportunity that they probably haven't had. And I'm not defending them mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Because I feel that it's also your decision. At a certain point in your, in your life, you are able <laughs> to to probably think a little bit, you know, further and say, okay, so these are issues that I should probably be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. But... Let's try to move away. <laughs> yeah, but no, but I think I think it's really relevant because like a little bit of, of your work, for example, one that I really like is Promised Land uh, Template. Mm -hmm. And I think that you address a little bit of that in, in that work. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the, the, the kind of premise of that work was to sort of look back uh, at, you know, historically what has been done in general with minorities that don't have a territory, a specific territory. Um, so going back to like, you know, biblical times uh, and the symbolic idea of like, you know, the Jews escaping from Egypt from, you know, the beginning and not having a land to like the Roms, you know, which are still around. And a few years back, uh, England and France passed some policies to um, expulse them from, you know, from France and from England. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, there's still like groups like this. It's still happening or like, you know, um, Native Canadians or Native Americans, uh, it, they still have to fight for their land. And so it was this kind of tension between the idea of nationalism and the idea of having a land and the idea of like the absence of this. And basically, how does any kind of larger form of institution or society or, or power structure deals with that? And usually it's like, well, we're going to you know, try to not deal with you unless we really have to and then whatever. But it was, I guess, like the, the project itself, my premise was to just sort of externalize my feeling towards what's happening in the form of a painting and then an installation. Mm -hmm. And it was, I guess, a combination of cynicism with um, some irony, but also was also a bit for me more than like, I mean, I don't see cynicism as like something uh, fundamentally negative. I think it can also be quite positive. So I guess I was trying to like figure out a way to give uh, a mood, like a visual mood to how I felt about it. And then and just to, to address the issue quite directly. Like it's mm -hmm. one of the things that I think I, I just have a natural inclination to do. Like a lot of people in their work uh, try to use, you know, like, something more personal or individual to address the universal. I feel like that's very compelling, but I somehow can't seem to do that really. I, I go more like directly straight on with the issue I'm interested in. And uh -huh. I think more diagrammatically, I think. Yeah. And it, it comes out that way, I guess, in the work as well. Yeah, I think it's pretty evident. You use the gradient of colors mm -hmm. and text mm -hmm. and also some symbols as arrows, um, and I was wondering about that. I was wondering if it's a way to guide a little bit the experience of looking at, at the work mm -hmm. or... Well, it's it's very much that. The first paintings that I did that were more like sort of architecturally driven, uh, that was during my MFA at CalArts in 2010. And then it followed in 2011 and, and afterwards. And I did so much research into every single project and every piece of architecture that I used in my painting was first thought of and then as like basically corresponding to a given reality 
And then I drew everything from scratch. I made the plans, usually down to like, you know, the design of the windows, the toilet seat, like everything. Right. So it took forever, of course. And I'm not an architect, so I, it took longer. <laughs> and I, I didn't use back then any um, architecture-based software. I just drew it and okay. then scanned it and then used Photoshop to render it. And oh, wow. then when I was happy with this, paint it and then modify it, you know, uh -huh. until it, it meant something that worked. But there was so much research into it. And then in the end, like the ideas were always quite specific. And there's only so much of it that came true. So that at some point I thought like, well, you know, like what is it that I'm really interested in? Is it uh -huh. just the image or is the image as a link to a much bigger idea? And then if that's so, what is the portion of that idea that's conveyed through the image? Like, what am I losing here? I felt that I was losing yeah, quite a big okay. chunk of the juice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I sort of began by the first time I, I did something uh, to address this was I made a diptych in which there was like sort of a plan and then the legend. That was the second painting to it. Okay. And then with colors corresponding. And I had been thinking about diagrams for a while because I thought diagrams are kind of, from a painter's perspective, hilarious because they're, it's like the least sexy thing you can think of, you know, and it's also doing the opposite of what most paintings do, which is basically to be very subjective and let your personal, you're free to interpret this brushstroke as this or that. But by saying like, no, this is yellow and yellow means corporate. Right. And then you're just like, that's sort of the opposite of what we're supposed to do with painting. So I thought that was interesting to just try it. And then it just, for a year, I had the idea without knowing how to do it. And at some point, like when I was drawing one of those complicated, you know, city maps, um, I was just like, well, why not basically just make the map and like make a legend? And then I started to do that. And then some of the things that I used more and more just became like a bit uh, part of the vocabulary, like arrows, for example, simply because of their very basic function. It has a very simple didactic function. Yeah. Yeah. Text also, I quite like, basically what I like with text is that you can put anchors uh -huh. in places and say like, if I put the word nationalism in the middle of like a yellow color field, you just have to deal with it somehow. <laughs> like, you can, like or, or not, you can just avoid it. But if you're looking at the painting, you kind of have to deal with the fact that there's that word there. And if you just want to see that, you know, yellow field is just a beautiful color, well, it, there's something in the way or or at least, it, I don't know, you have to kind of fight with it somehow. Yeah. And so then to start using words to do this, to place anchors, for me, it's not, the idea is not to like restrict completely the, the, and be like super didactic and hammer people's head with like specific meaning. It's more to sort of uh, create a certain uh, range of possibilities that is not 100% open. It's maybe mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you sort of by putting a word here and a word there and an arrow here and there, you sort of close the range a bit more so that you can still go on forever thinking about what you want. But but that's going to be within the framework of those ideas as opposed to be within the framework of any idea. Right. So yeah. that that's a bit the goal of, of what I'm trying to do yeah. to like, you know, and then the thing that I realized also um, is that often when I have very complicated paintings, I can put another one that has basically nothing in it next to it. And then people will project their thoughts from the first one to the second one. So uh -huh. I often realize that in exhibitions, like it, it becomes very important how the works are placed together to create this sort of cumulative meaning so that when you travel from one work to another, what's the experience you're having? And I, I think that's 
ultimately that's what I'm really interested in. Like, what is the experience you're having with with this stuff that I'm providing you with, with this visual experience, or is it only visual? Is it also intellectual? Like, hopefully a bit of everything, and and also just like you know how you feel. In this specific show, Promise Land uh, template, you also have architectural installations. Mm-hmm. When did you start to think about um, making this physical sculpture-like uh, shows? How did that start? Um, I began to think in terms of buildings earlier in my years at CalArts when I was just like trying to design painting environments, like basically just within the painting. And um, there's a moment where at some point I just decided to like, you know, uh, contextualize a bit. Like for my graduate, it was something very, very simple. It was, there was different spaces at ColorArts that we use as galleries to present our thesis projects. And I had a really bad pick at the lottery when we picked the galleries. They ended up with like a very large hallway that was one of the worst places to show because it's just a big hallway, essentially. Um, And so one of the things that I did is just I built two very small walls that sort of restricted the size of the hallway. So you felt like you entered the room and exited the room when you went through the hallway and it completely changed the space. So that was one of the moments where I I started to think like, well, you know, I can totally modify space. Why not? I mean, mm-hmm. space is super powerful. Mm-hmm. And the works were addressing it. So I just started to think like, why, why not, you know, build stuff that addresses the same thing? It's it just like kind of an extension yeah. of the content of the work. When I build them, it's always, they're never going to be like real houses or real uh-huh. buildings or anything. Sure. They, they only need to be as real as is necessary f- to envision a reality. And sometimes that has to be quite real. And sometimes it has to be just like a sketch or something or um, or an image. But for me, it's it's the idea of the reality that would exist with that thing that I'm interested in. It's not the thing itself. When you think of LA, you would normally think of nice weather, sunny beaches, and of course, the entertainment industry. The city gathers a good amount of wealth. In any given vernissage at one of the trendy contemporary art galleries, it is not strange to rub elbows with the rich and the famous. But not too far from there, there is a neighborhood called Skid Row. Skid Row is an area composed of about 50 blocks in downtown LA. In the 1800s, Skid Row was one of the last train stops in the state of California. And some people think that this promoted the congregation of homeless people and people disfavored by the system. And until today, this is not very different. Each night, the count of homeless people inhabiting the streets of Skid Row is around 15,000, mostly African-American and Latino. It is in this neighborhood where Nicolas Studio is located. As an observation of the huge disparity in social classes in LA, the idea or thought experiment of vertically integrated socialism was created. As Nicola explains, it is a design-based solution to integrate different social classes in one building. This with the intention of constantly exposing all social classes to each other. This project was exhibited in Belgium at the Bruges Triennial of Art and Architecture in 2015. And more recently, in May of 2017, Nicola had an exhibition at Clark Center in Montreal, also titled Vertically Integrated Socialism. This show included several 50 minutes lectures 
slash performances, in which, assisted by a 3D animation, Nicola read the story of an individual moving up through the different levels of the proposed building while explaining the details of the economics and social aspects of each level. Vertically integrated socialism invites you to confront with things that are very easy to ignore, such as the disparity in social classes, the constant anxiety to get up in the society ladder, and finally, the crude realization that the more you climb the economical hill, the more people you are likely to step on. I asked Nicola to talk about this idea. Oh, and by the way, you can find more information related to this and any other of Nicola's projects on our website, intothispodcast.com. Here's Nicola. Part of the idea with vertically integrated socialism is sort of to address the complexities of, of dealing with people that are either oppressed or oppressors and how the hell do you deal with this? Mm -hmm. um, I first thought of it and made a painting about it in 2010 and then later on I made like a website to explain more. It was one of this, those same uh, set of problems that I had when I was making those uh, architecturally based paintings where there was a lot of research and then a painting and people would not necessarily get the full thing. So after I made the painting, I converted the project into something that looked like an architectural proposition. And then it was a website. It was exhibited as a very small website. And then I kind of let it sit for a while. And then uh, in 2013, I was in Belgium for a residency and I met a curator who really liked it. And he invited me to be part of the Bruges Triennial in 2015. Mm -hmm. And what I did then is... I made a model of the whole building with a model of one of the smallest apartments that would be in the building mm -hmm. and a 45-minute video that explained what was happening in the building. Because yeah. essentially, the whole project is about this building that has um, all social classes in the same building and they're mm -hmm. integrated economically within the same uh, unified structure. Mm -hmm. So with this building, the idea was to provide the poorest people with a design-based solution, which is basically meant to uh, give free housing with like some money, a little stipend to integrate the building. Mm -hmm. And as you integrate the building, uh, you're taken out of the street and put into an economic structure that accepts you. You can get a little job in it, and then you can get more money, and then you can get up in a structure. And uh, to get up, you need to pay more rent than the people living there. By doing this, you would kick them out and take over. And the idea with taking over is that it, it forces you to become like the structure, essentially. So the idea is that it's a structure that's very evil in the sense that uh, it accepts you on the premise that you will become like it. Um, yeah. So part of the reason why I was invited at the Bruce Triennial is because they saw it as a clear critique of American-style capitalism, like, you know, straight-up free market system. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and it is. But at the same time, it's also a critique of socialism in the in, in the basic sense that uh, not of not in a Marxist sense of socialism, but in a kind of pragmatic sense of using any ideology basically to to build a, a rigid system on it. It's sort of based on the premise of creating a structure that works a little bit like a, like an anti-revolution. But the idea that I'm interested in too is. Okay, so what if you're homeless, but somehow you make it to the top? Like, just pretend the American dream happened uh -huh. and you make it to the top. By the time you reach the top, to be able to reach the top, you need to oppress more and more yeah, people as absolutely. you go up. Yeah. So how can you possibly reach the top without becoming an oppressor? Well, if we ever imagine that this guy somehow still in, 
in him or in her still has some kind of social consciousness or something and wants to change things, how could you possibly do it? Because the thing is, if you do reach the top, you represent the dream. So if you kill the structure, you also kill the dream for the people at the bottom. And how could you possibly accept to live in a structure if you kill if you kill the, the only reason why you would want to live there in the first place is because you believe that you can reach the top. So, so there's all those kind of contradictions and paradoxes. Yeah. I'm interested in that. I started this project about a year ago. And one of the biggest objectives from the beginning of the project was to get to know the motivations behind art making. I asked Nicola what makes him be at his studio every day, putting on the hours. And here's what he said. try to go down to the bottom of things like for me the most crucial things ever is to think what what is relevant today like what does it mean to lift a paintbrush and paint today if you're a painter what does it mean to do art today in general mm -hmm. and what's the responsibility of this and um not that everybody should be you know political or whatever but whatever you do um will be set in a political context whether you want it or not yeah. and you can sort of semi avoid it but not really you know there's this expression i forget who said it it says like uh if you don't take care of politics politics will take care of you sure so i think for me as a visual artist one of the most crucial things in terms of education and uh dealing with younger generations is to talk about uh visual literacy Like how, if you see an image, how do you interpret an image? What's the ideology behind this image? Like that could be applied to colors, to shape, to compositions, to, to anything really. But if you look at any image, there is always an ideology embedded in it somehow. Yes. Sometimes it's more obvious, sometimes it's less so, but it always participates in something that is not just, you know, a, an image floating in nowhere. So, and, and what kind of vision of ourselves as artists we have when we you know create images what kind of images are we interested in creating and can make like the most expressionist abstract images that you feel is just coming out of you but you know the colors you may use may come from influences that you know if you don't think about it and you just watch tv all day <laughs> there's a chance that the visual stuff that you've been exposed to is will somehow come out you yeah, know absolutely and so so to deal with this to think about it i think is like really really crucial today Right, and how important is, for example, that in terms of people that are not artists, people mm -hmm. that are just going to look at your your images and mm -hmm. that are, I don't mean this in a bad way, but that are um, visually illiterate, you know what I right, mean? Like, right, like right. People don't really understand the same way, right? Yeah, no, but for me, as a painter, the homework that I give myself is to try to create visual experiences that are not the ones you would see mm -hmm. normally. And so to begin just with, with colors, for example, like... You know, in a daily in our daily lives, we see a really wide range of colors. Uh, you know, if I look in front of me, there's a pile of books. Uh, these books have been printed in possibly different countries using different printing methods. But this kind of red, this kind of blue, most of them are in the Pantone uh, gamut. So mm -hmm. the Pantone colors are, you know, a certain number of colors that we like 90% of everything we see every day comes from this specific range of colors. Right. Now, if I spend two days mixing an unspeakable green that in it has like 25 different pigments and like this green in it has orange, yellow, blue, red, purple, magenta, you know, like orange, like everything is in it. But in the end, it's this kind of weird green. 
Well, mm. this green does have in itself all those other colors. And if I use this and I make a large color field with that green, chances are you never saw that green before because it's, you know, if it's precise enough and if I somehow it's convincing enough and it's far enough from something you've seen before because it's, it has these weird tensions in itself, it it can provide an experience that you yeah. haven't seen before. Yeah. And so to to try to do this with not only colors, but also with, you know, composition, content, yeah. how it's presented and everything. I th that's one of the things that I, I, I'm really interested in to propose right. things that, you know, are not the usual range of things yeah. we see. The opposite is that marketing wants you to feel comfortable with things that you see yeah. in the street and wherever. So yeah, that that's a really they, good point. Yeah. So that you are exposed to things that you probably saw before so that you mm -hmm. can relate. Yeah. And, and this is, this is where this ideology, um, comes back to the ideology of, uh, you know, white supremacy or of uh, oneness, you know, we're all the same. And this sort of thing where like, you know, marketing, design, advertisement, uh, making oneself comfortable within a certain restricted, you know, range of yeah. experiences. Like this is the exact same problem as like, you know, living in a suburb with people yes. exactly like you and everything. Yes. Like, this is the thing, like yes. when you live comfortably within a certain Absolutely. range of things, like, so this is something I'm against. <laughs> I really try to break this. As I was editing the last segment, it made me think about a lot of things. I started to question how much am I willing to step away from my comfort zones to expand my limits? I don't really have an answer for this yet, really. But I don't think that getting an answer is the most important thing here. Instead, I think the most important thing is to be willing to run those personal experiments and to be open to new and most likely uncomfortable experiences. I asked Nicola to compare his life in LA with his life in Montreal. Here's Nicola. In LA, the thing is like, when you go to like openings, you know, in big galleries, you see a lot of the really rich people and then you know going back to my studio in Skid Row I see a lot of very very miserable people so I guess like to sort of feel that I have to deal with both yeah. at all times yeah. kind of keeps me grounded somehow I, I can situate myself and you know know that I this is a reality that's there and that I can't live on credit and think that no I'm I'm in a world and I'm doing my shares like no there, there's really dark shit going on and sure. if you know, if I don't address it somehow in my head, in my consciousness, there's there's something lacking there. And when I'm in Montreal, I forget about this mm. after a while. I just, you know, I see my friends, I go out, I have a coffee, my rent is cheap. Things are things are okay. Yeah. And and it's easy to forget the rest. Does this mean that art that doesn't look at these issues, is it less interesting for you? No. Mm. Not not at all. I I, th I think if everybody was um as psychotic as I am about this, it would be quite boring and everybody would be moralizing each other. It would be uh -huh. terrible. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, of course, it's an area of interest. I think pretty much every piece of art that I've been interested in, though, this aspect was somehow not necessarily addressed directly, but I feel that often you can feel where the work comes from. Uh, and sometimes, like, I would go in an art fair and I see works that are that participate in a certain kind of visual culture that could not exist in an underprivileged mm. class, for example. You know, like, there's so many points of references that all point out to the same kind of uniformness mm. that, that that 
is something that I would say I'm not interested in that. No. Um, but I think that anything that exp- that kind of creates this experience of otherness right. uh, for me works. It's not like a magical recipe. It doesn't have to be this. But I think that anything that succeeds in doing this, whether it's just purely formal or, you know, like I have some friends that are um, contemporary music composers and, you know, they would not really think in terms of cultural terms mm-hmm. when they create the thing, but the kind of mathematical games that they're playing kind of brings you to a really strange place where from which you can think about culture and things from a very t- like skewed perspective, yeah. which I find equally eye-opening. Right. Um, so for me, it's not necessarily addressing the issue. It's more like, what is this new perspective or what is the vision of the work or what does it bring you to? Yeah. Uh, and I feel that often the work that I like if I think about it, will bring me to something different or to, a, to, to another experience. Yeah. yeah. In the, that kind of sense, material meanings are important and mm-hmm. we all need them. Yeah. How do you conceive yourself as an artist and also going into the commercial area mm-hmm. of well, art? That's an interesting thing because it's like the big paradox of the art world, right? Yeah. It's like it's it's the most like... You know, I'm here preaching about the good things we should be doing. <laughs> and of course, like, you know, the people who can afford buying one of my paintings would be people that, you know, have more money than I have. Like, I could not sell my works to pretty much any of my friends. And so what does that mean that you make works yeah. that eventually end up in people that are not your peers, essentially? They're, I mean, some of them are, of course. And But but I, class does make a difference, more so in the States than here. And also the there's a question of, like, you know, a lot of the works are bought by corporations, for example, or banks or stuff. And so what does it mean to have, you know, a corporation or a bank that whose investments are in gold mining Congo buying your work? You know, you just like, if you think about it, it gets really dark really quick. But my point of view is just that everything is so intertwined and that there's nothing, you know, clean or nothing is, I guess it's just really hard to navigate and for me the solution is just that to accept that there are paradoxes that it's very hard to deal with and Mm -hmm. to try to to not tell myself a clean narrative in which i make sense of my actions but more to to understand that i i am at every moment navigating really dirty waters and that i'm trying to avoid for myself the good guy bad guy narrative Uh, there's a lot of things that i'm against and a lot of things that i'm in favor of but i always try to like it's like, okay, so if I am selling a work for whatever amount to whoever can afford it, regardless of, they might be complete assholes, they yeah. might be like, you know, Trump supporters, whatever. Like, <laughs> so what what do I think about this? Or they might be really great. They might, you know, be in charge of a great foundation. I don't know, but how do I navigate this when I make the work? Who And the work itself is addressing that. So I guess for me, it, it comes down to a recipe, which is... Um, I cannot do enough of what I'd like to do concretely with my art. So I'm going to try more and more to like donate a chunk of the revenues to activists that I know are doing the right things regardless, because I don't believe in the potential of art to change society to that degree. I I don't fully trust it. So I think like a bit of my revenue somehow, even though I don't make much, I'm going to place at a safe place that I know it's, it's going to make change somehow. And then, um, I also think that I'm trying to do a lot of projects that are not commercially driven and that really uh, have nothing to do with any kind of commercial transactions. Not because I deem I think commercial transactions are bad, but I do think it limits uh, the scope of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I think that's like, I, I'm trying, like my way of dealing with those paradoxes is, you know, to do something beside the world of arts that's actually useful yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and to to really try to make works that's real, like mm -hmm. to have a bunch of projects that are not just in my head, but that are like somehow addressing for real the things that I feel are important. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes is just like, um, like one project that I'm thinking of right now is to create a network of redistribution. It's basically an economic project, you know, that if it could work would be like, sort of like the Facebook of used things, for example. So I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to like mix in projects that are the extension of my ideas that I use in paintings, but actually connect them with the uh -huh. real issue in the world that's connected with it. So I'm not sure if I'm making sense here, but no, I'm, no, no, I'm yeah, I think so. It's like a, like a trading economy. Yeah, it's yeah, related sure. to that. Yeah, it's it's like, totally related yeah, to it. Right, right. right. Um, the difference is that I'm interested in trying those things from the perspective of art, in a sense that the goal itself is not firstly pragmatic. It's kind of an experiment. Like for example, this summer I did a project at Concordia with sightings, which was a series of art transactions mm -hmm. where the project was to exchange an artwork for the time it took to make it. Because as I said, like a lot of people that buy art, you know, it's not, I can't buy art really. I can't exchange it, but I can't really buy it. Right. And a lot of people that I know love it, but they're not, they will not own it. Um, so there were 16 works that were given in exchange for a certain period of the time. It is right. specific context. Mm -hmm. And it worked out actually really great. Like, it, you know, we did it this summer and a bunch of people went. Some were actual collectors right. who just were totally dedicated and loved the work and usually buy them. And this time, like, went there and spent the time and got them. And then other people were people who had never acquired the work before. So it, it, it kind of, you know, mixed in a little bit. So this was kind of like an attempt yeah. to create those kind of real world transactions that are right. based on switching the rules of the economic system, essentially, in a very micro scale, but but that's real. So for the people who experienced it, yeah. um, I guess it's probably something they'll remember for a while. And one of the dangers to a lot of projects like this is to kind of create this sort of like us against them, you know, like yes. sort of dichotomy. And I, yes. I I don't believe in that either, but it's, it's hard to address as well as just like the difference between having money and not having money is a different kind of power. But <sighs> ultimately, the thing though is that like, Money, when you think about it, is a relatively uninteresting currency in the sense that, like, compared to time, you know, if you have little money, uh, uh, every dollar is quite a lot to you. Mm. But if you're really, really rich, money doesn't mean much. No. Um, what is like time, you know, a year of your life means roughly the same thing for all of us because we're all going to die anyway. Yeah. Um, so if you can be really rich, but then maybe 12 hours of your time will be really, really precious. Yeah. Um, so I guess that was that was the idea with with that project to sort of switch the thing so that you know people that maybe I don't know if you're unemployed, it's much easier for you to spend twelve hours to acquire artwork. But if you're like working eighty hours a week, it's really difficult. So that, it switches the game a little bit. It was really interesting, and I'm I'm about to publish like a PDF version of the archive of the project. Okay. With, and everybody left like the only thing pe people who waited for the work could not use any tool of communication mm -hmm. or work. Mm -hmm. So no cell phone, no computer, no book, nothing. Mm -hmm. Basically, you had to think and you had basically to feel time. Yeah. Um, the only thing people could do was to write notes. Yeah. Uh, and on average, people left between, I would say, five and 15 pages of notes per person. So it, and it's really interesting because we're, we're so used to read 
text nowadays that has been edited on a computer, meaning you can cut and paste. And time is no longer inscribed into text as it used to be, because it used to be a linear activity. You begin and unless you erase, but if you write with ink, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to it's going to be visible if you're changing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that was really interesting to me with those notes is that you really feel time passing with the notes in a way that you don't when you read an email or when you read a novel or when you read a piece of journalism or anything, really. Yeah. Um, the shortest work was 45 minutes and the longest one was 16 hours. Yeah. So, But people, some people did like 12 hours straight and some other people did it in like several sessions mm-hmm. of two, three hours. Mm-hmm. It really changed. The thing I learned though is that the reason why those projects don't happen more often is because it takes an enormous quantity of time to organize it. Oh, yeah. uh, I probably spent about 300 hours making that happen. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. So it was just like, uh, you know, and there's no money anywhere in there, right? So and I still need to live and I still yeah. need to buy food. This is where I think it hurts the idea of capitalism being annoying because it's so efficient that it makes sure. anything that doesn't participate within a structure really difficult to do. Mm. You can do all of it if you're willing to put the time for no money at all. Mm. But I can't really afford to spend endless amount of hours without getting money. Of course. Therefore, I don't really do things that don't participate in a capitalist yeah. system. And this is where it hurts. Absolutely. But I, I, I really want to work hard on doing more of this sort of stuff. We're getting close to the end of the episode. I just wanted to tell you how grateful we are that you're listening. And if you have one or two minutes to spare, please write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other people finding the show. Thanks a lot in advance. You can find information about Nicola's future shows in our website, intothispodcast.com. Now, back to the show. So I usually ask my guests to tell me a story, Mm -hmm. and I wonder if you have one story. I have a few possibilities. Um, uh, oh, wow. We get, we get to choose. Well, okay. I, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell a very short one and one that's a little longer. When I was at my studio uh, in LA, so it's in Skid Row, the, the, you know, the homeless neighborhood in downtown LA. And every night when I leave my studio, you know, either I take my car or take the metro, depending on the time. And so one night, I, you know, I have to walk like, roughly 10-15 minutes through the neighborhood to get to little Tokyo metro station which during the day is very kind of casual during the night it's a bit you know rougher looking sometimes whatever and um, so I was there one night it was maybe I don't know it was like the last metro around 11.30 or something like that and I'm just waiting there alone and just you know whatever just waiting and it takes time it's slow and just waiting and then there's this guy that comes by and he's really tall um, but he looks quite young, but you know, one of those people, it, it could be like 15 or 25, it's really hard to tell. He was not white, but I couldn't say if he was like South American or native or like, a, just didn't know. Like, So anyway, he comes with me and he asked me if he could use my phone. And I'm just like, ah, you know, like you're, you're just yeah. there and you're just like, all you, you could just grab it and run with it and I couldn't do anything and I'm just like ah but maybe he's in trouble I don't want to be the asshole who's just like no so I didn't really know what to do so I just like lied until I'm just really sorry my phone died like you know I can't and he was just like oh okay well you know and he just kind of stayed there um standing in front of me and then he started started to chat a little bit 
And the thing I remember that was weird is that this guy, his voice was super, super soft spoken and really high, like a really high pitch, like, you know, a prepubescent guy almost. Um, but he was like at least six foot two. He was quite tall, very skinny. I still remember the feeling of his presence was quite unusual. And um, as we talk, I don't know how we came to talk about this, but we came to talk about surfing and the ocean. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, I wish I could go to the ocean. And I'm like, oh, you, you, you've never been? We're in L.A. He's like, yeah, well, you know, it's like an hour and a half bus from here. So, no, I've never been. And I'm wow. like, oh, well, are you? did you grow up in L.A.? He's like, no, I grew up in one of the uh, Indian reservations in a desert. I'm like, oh, where? He's like, oh, in the Mojave. It's like maybe 200 miles from here, 300 miles. I'm like, oh, so when, when did you arrive in L.A.? And he's like, oh, maybe like two year, about two years ago. And, and then he's like, uh, he's like, yeah, but you know, like when you... When you arrive in LA, that's that's when hell breaks loose. And it was just like, I didn't know what he meant by that. But it was, he said it with, you know, with his very soft, high-pitched voice, but just like, you know, that's when hell breaks loose. And he just said it so softly, and it was just like, you know, what does he mean? Like, what kind of trouble is he in? Or what? Because you just don't know, like in that yeah. neighborhood, most people are homeless at that time. There's lots of gangs, there's lots of everything. So I have no idea what this guy's background is, but he says that and I'm just like, whoa. I wait a bit and then there's like two other guys like a few hundred feet away and they, they kind of make a sign to him. And then this, you know, he sees them and he yells something to them, but really loud with a really low voice. And that kind of, it was so bizarre. It was just like two different persons. Like, you know, he was like super sweet and super soft with me. And he just yelled something out and then looked at me again and said, oh, well, I have to go. Um, all right, bye. And he walked away. And I was just like, wow, man, like what, what kind of life this, this guy has? Like what, it was so mysterious to me. And it's also kind of emblematic of a lot of people that arrive in mm -hmm. LA mm -hmm. from like, you know, this so-called underclass that come without a family to go to, that come without, maybe he did have a family, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, I've, I've met other people like that in Skid Row. Mm -hmm. um, like a, about a year and a half ago, there was this, I was like just driving the street and there's this girl that steps by and opened the window and she was begging for change, like it happens all the time. But I look at her, and she was maybe like 17, 18 years old. And that's really rare at Skid Row. You don't see, like usually you see older men. Like, honestly, like 90, maybe 80% of the population are older black males. It's like a very specific demographic. And you see some Mexicans, you see some whites, you see some, you know, South Americans, you see a bit of everything, but mostly it's like black males. So this girl, I have almost never seen any girl that young there. and. She, she, I could be wrong, but I'm almost positive that she was a Native American. Mm -hmm. And she spoke with like a little bit of an accent, but a very kind of super polite English that mm -hmm. really clashed with the language in Skid Row. And she was just like, you know, asking for change very, very politely with kind of a timid look. And you could just tell like, she has nothing to do with the world that's going on here. Cause it's, it's really rough down there. I mean, you look at people and everybody's like, 
you know, two thirds people have like uh, a mental disease. A lot of them have physical issues. Um, most of them have drug or alcohol problem. And if you don't, when you arrive there, you develop it soon because what else can you do there? And uh, so it's, you know, it's usually really, really rough. And a lot of people have the junkie shake, you know, like the smoke crack and you just see them in the street. They don't look right. And most of the women you see there, there are few. And the ones you see in the streets um, are usually involved with prostitution, like, and it's usually quite obvious, you know. And seeing that girl there, I was just like, holy shit, like, how long is it gonna take for this girl's life to be completely destroyed here? You know, like, two days, one day, maybe a week, probably not that long. You know, you start to imagine very quickly what the economy of the street does to a girl that young. And she was very pretty. And you're just like, oh my God, like this is so like, oh man. And so so there's a few experiences like that in Skid Row with like younger people that have sort of marked me somehow that I still remember and as like left a definitive like print into my brain. Yeah. <laughs> um, and usually it's not the most typical ones. It's like the little things that clash with the reality there. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I really appreciate your time oh, and your thanks to you. Your stories. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Cool. So we got some material. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was produced and edited by me, Marx Ruiz Wilson, with help from Raul Aguilar and our sound engineer, Milton Matthew. Our visual designer is Victor Garibay. You should check out the music credits in our website, intothispodcast.com. By the way, Nicolas Granier has a show happening right now titled Precarious Geographies. It is his first solo show at Antoine Tasker Gallery in Griffintown here in Montreal. And the show runs until November 11th, so you still have time to go check it out. It is pretty amazing. Make sure not to miss it. In the next episode coming out in three Fridays, I talk to Jérôme Nadeau. He is a co-founder of the art space Soon.tw. He'll be here telling it how it is. It's really hard when you get out of school. You're going to apply for shows and you know, you're going to be rejected. But also suggesting some ideas. There's no reason why you don't just create it, you know. Like, I mean, there's no there's no rule. You can do whatever you want. That and more in episode number six of Into This Podcast. We'll see you soon. <laughs>